0: You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. Keisha Hawes was age 31 when she survived a heart attack. Since then, she has shared her story to help others. She became South Carolina's first national spokesperson for the American Heart Association. Welcome, Keisha Haas. Let's begin with your work here at Meeting Street Academy. Tell us about that.
1: Sure. So my journey here at Meeting Street Academy started in 2008 as a parent, a founding family of the school when it first opened. Um, So I moved on from being just an avid parent volunteer to accepting a position as the front office manager, the face of the school when you first walk in. So I stayed there for about a year, and it really just reignited a lifelong passion that I've had for teaching kids. Just working with kids. So I moved on now into my newest role um, as a pre-K intervention
0: teacher. And tell us about the school. It's a private school and what are your goals with the children here? It is a private school. So our goals are pretty broad and
1: almost simple. We just want every child to have a fair opportunity to the best education that they possibly can receive and the best opportunities.
0: Let's talk about what you called a perfected interruption, your experience of suffering a heart attack at age 31. What led up to it, and how did what happened?
1: Hmm. <laughs> I've answered that question a number of times, and I promise you, every time something else pops up into my mind. During that time in my life, I was just very stressed. I had lost the job that I loved, and um, I was unemployed. I knew that I had some pre-existing conditions and some challenges with my blood sugars and blood pressure, and I was taking prescribed medication for those conditions. But during that time where my income kind of was restricted, I thought, it would have been a good idea <laughs> to stop taking those medications because I felt fine and I felt healthy. So I think that just kind of sped everything up. Along with the added stress, I just believe in after I lost a job that I love, I just kind of took on a number of smaller jobs, trying to just make up for the income that my household needed to survive. So I think kind of working around the clock, being stressed, and um, the added issue of stopping the prescribed medication just kind of led up to that evening where I was at work, well actually I was at home, I just started feeling chest pains. Prior to that, I was under a lot of stress, and I left home, ran to my favorite fast food restaurant, grabbed my favorite combo, uh, which I knew was not the healthiest outlet. But that's what made me feel good at that time. That's what provided me with comfort. So that's what I did, like most people. And then I came home and after I ate it, I just lied down. And so the first time I felt the the pain, I just assumed it was punishment for eating such a substantial meal and then lying down. But it consisted and it remained for about, about an hour before I really started to get concerned. And so then I was just kind of like, well, I have tomorrow off from one of my jobs, which was unusual. So I said, I'm just going to run to the ER, as opposed to trying to get an appointment, just get some antibiotics. Because at that, the second diagnosis, I diagnosed myself with having an upper respiratory infection. So, the first one was indigestion. The second one was an upper respiratory infection. So, I ran to the ER, drove myself there. So you drove yourself? I drove myself, mistake number one. Do not do that. No <laughs> one else with you? No one else with me. My husband offered, but again, we had two small children at home. It was a Saturday night. I don't want to take them into the ER. You never know what you could see there. I felt strong enough to drive myself. I remember briefly blacking out on the drive. I'm a country girl, and in the country we have all of these uh, sayings, and one of them is that God looks out for babies and fools. (laughs) So in that night, on that night, I just think he looked out for the fool in me driving herself to the hospital while she's having chest pains. Once I arrived at the hospital, you know, I told them that I was having chest pains. And um, what was ironic was that it wasn't treated as an emergent situation. Like they sat me down in the waiting room and then they actually thought that I was, I told them that I was coming there to visit. A patient that was having chest pains and once they realized that I said no I am having chest pains. They took me in the back gave me an EKG, triaged me. My blood pressure was at that point three digits over three digits and but they still sat me back in the waiting room and so I waited. Um, Again, it was a Saturday night, very busy. Then when they sat, they took me in the back. I waited for a doctor to come in. They uh, drew some blood and everyone really was just kind of mellow. And then it wasn't until about dawn, they came in and they did another round of blood work and they realized that there had been another woman, an older woman, that had come into the ER the same time I did, complaining of chest pains. And so when the nurse presented the doctor with both of our lab work around the same time, he assumed that the nurse made a mistake. So he had been treating the older patient as the heart attack patient. And it wasn't until the second round of blood work where I had heart enzymes in my blood work that a team came rushing in, put nitrogen paste on my chest, electrodes and all of this. And I actually got transferred to another hospital. Unbeknownst to me that I was having a heart attack still, though, it wasn't until I got into to the second hospital, the nurse came in to tell me that they were going to take me into the catheterization lab to see what was causing my event. And then based upon that, they would determine whether or not I would get a stent placement or have a bypass surgery. And at that point, I was like, wait a minute. No, you know, I'm just here for a stress test. Because that's what they told me at the last hospital. And she was like, i want to have the doctor come in and talk to you. And I was like, yes, you do that. So when he came in, he said, Ms. Hawes, he verified my identity and he said, there's no need for us to do a stress test because it's evident that you've had a heart attack. And being the 80s baby that I am, I said, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what are you talking about, sir? I said, I don't even have time to have a heart attack. And he, in that moment, he told me, he said, when I saw the chart, I was like, a 31-year-old woman, how? And then I met you and now I know <laughs> because you're telling me that you don't have time to have a heart attack after I told you that you've just had one. So, so then what happened? Did they um, so a stint? Yes, so I went into the catheterization lab. They found that I had a 95% blockage in one of my main coronary arteries. At that point, I came to the realization that if I had not stopped and actually gone to the hospital when I did, that it's very possible that I wouldn't be sitting here able to share my story. So I went, they placed a stent in um, the artery. With that procedure, there's a 1% chance that there can be a complication. So the stent is a metal-like umbrella that they stick into your artery, it opens up. When it opens up, there's a 1% chance that it can puncture the artery. And in true Keisha Hawes fashion, (laughs) I don't do anything ordinary, yes. It punctured, no one realized it until they rolled me back in and they were telling my family that everything was fine and I actually came to. And when I came to, I grabbed the doctor's arm and I said to him, I'm in the most excruciating pain that I've ever been in in my life. And at that point, I had already given birth to two children. So I know pain pain. and um, I blacked out Uh, When I woke up, I was in intensive care unit, so um, that's exactly what happened. It punctured, and I was bleeding internally, and the blood was actually resting on my back, which is why I was in so much pain. So throughout that process, I had lost so much blood that my blood pressure then went from three digits over three digits to two digits over two digits, and it was literally in the teens and at this particular time i was at the hospital alone because my husband went to drop my kids off to my parents and get all of that arranged so he could come back and so i just remember the nurse coming in telling me that you know i would require a blood transfusion throughout this whole process fear had never really entered my mind until that moment and i'm not one of those people who does not believe in blood transfusions but it was just overwhelming like what came in, what you told me was going to fix me (laughs) is now complicated my condition even more. And so when you're in the intensive care unit, the monitors are all around you. You're able to see all of your vitals. And so I could see that my blood pressure was now in the teens. And while I'm not a doctor, I do realize that zero over zero is the flat line. And um, I'm very, I wouldn't say religious, but I am spiritual and I do believe in my relationship that I have with my creator. So it was at that point that, you know, I was like, hey, is this thing on? (laughs) What you doing up there, big guy? Um, So and I just went to God and I said, you know, I'm afraid. My faith is wavering. However, I do know that your word reminds me that all I need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. So here it is, this is what I have right now. And I said, you know, I really need a sign that you're here right now. And the next moment, the nurse came in to prepare me for my blood transfusion. And she placed the blood bag on the IV hook and my attention was directed to my blood type. And my blood type is B positive. And it's in that moment that I heard or I was assured by God that he was there, that he was always there, that he would never leave me nor forsake me and that he would turn this experience into a positive one for not only me, but also
0: my family and my community. So then after that, it was successful, and how long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for about a week. It's
1: funny because I became like an attraction. (laughs) At the hospital, all of the nurses came to visit me. They wanted to see the 31-year-old heart attack patient. And so they would come in, and I would actually end up encouraging them. (laughs) You know, people, they want to feel sorry for me, but I don't allow people to do that because I don't even feel like I suffered a heart attack. I don't like to tell my story like that. I tell my story by saying that I have survived a heart attack. I realized that this is something that happened to me to save my life. And even in discussions later with my cardiologist, he talked about the benefits of me having a heart attack very early on. Number one, people don't typically die from heart attacks. You die from the blockage having killed off the heart muscle. So by the time the heart attack comes around, your heart is too weak to defend itself. So by me having a heart attack early on, I didn't have a chance for the blockage to destroy much of my heart muscle. Secondly, because I was so young, I had the agility to really jump back pretty quickly. And then thirdly, I just had a a large support system and a number of resources that could still really pour into me.
0: You say that you don't allow people to feel badly for you and yet here you are, you were raising two children, you had several jobs, and you had a heart attack at age 31.
1: I think about the converse of each one of those traits. I think about someone who did not survive a heart attack. I think about the woman, and I'm also a woman who has lost babies, so I think about the woman who may not be able to conceive. I think about the person who is unable to get one job, much less several jobs to be able to support their family. And so I try to approach everything from gratitude. I realize that even in difficulties, it could have been
0: a different way. And a lot of times, a different way is not a better way. But are there times when you just want someone to say, hey, you've been through a rough patch here, Sure. I mean, I'm human. Yes, there were tears. There were anger.
1: I'm sure I've said uh, many harsh words to my biggest fan, my husband, who's with me when I'm at home, when I'm not feeling well, you know, when he has to get up in the middle of the night to get me something because my blood sugar has dropped or, you know, who sat in an uncomfortable chair in a hospital countless evenings with me. Yes, I get frustrated, but I give myself that moment, but I choose not to stay there.
0: And just your overall health, have you had anything like that since then? No. I would like to say that I wish I could say I'm a great
1: patient now. (laughs) I start out all of my doctor visits, and especially when I get a new doctor, um, with that I'm a horrible patient. Like, I'm the worst kind. I'm the kind that knows what I know. You know too much. I know too much, (laughs) exactly. so, can I do a better job of taking care of myself? Absolutely. I have even more reason to do that now. So, it's just always again, I'm my hardest job, persuading Keisha, Keisha Haas, and keeping her on task to take care of herself is still my hardest job. It's easy for me to motivate people, and I and I share with people that, you know, that some of this I need to I need to continue to say this to you because I need to continue to remind myself. I need to continue to keep myself on task. So every time I'm in front of, or behind a microphone, in front of an audience, and I'm telling my story,
0: the details, it's a reminder. So it's helping you at it's the same time. It's helping yes. There are those people who would have gone through something like that and had a difficult time even talking about it. You have not only talked about it, you've become a national spokesperson for the American Heart Association. How did you get from that situation to being able to talk about it?
1: Um, And I think I went through that process too. I went through a process where it was very embarrassing. I would like shy away from it, but I grew up in a small church and my mom is very, very religious and holds very strong to her faith. And so every single time we were together, she wanted me to tell someone about the goodness of God in my life. (laughs) Which meant sharing this story. So at first, you know, I'm like, Mom, please, like, I don't (laughs) want to talk about it. But I I just really accepted the fact that this is a miracle. Like, I have a second chance to do life again. An attack saved my life. Most people don't go from that to this that easily. And I think once I realized that heart disease was the number one killer, or is the number one killer of women in America. And I had no knowledge of that before this happened to me. I realized that there was a void somewhere that needed to be filled. Like women need to know that heart disease is serious and
0: it is a killer and it is preventable. And when you say that, how can women gain the knowledge so that they'll know what signs to look for? Because they are different from what I understand from the, what men have, for example. Right. I think it's
1: really just researching and talking about it and sharing your story because there are so many women that I've met that they're like, you know, yes, I am on a blood pressure medication. Yes, I do have high cholesterol, but I still work out. I still feel like I eat healthy, but I still deal with these things. Yes, my grandmother did die of a heart attack. Or yes, I have a friend that had a stroke and I didn't even realize, you know, or, you know, yes, I had preeclampsia. So what is your advice then to women, especially young women? Really just to take care of yourself, make sure that you're making yourself a priority, go to your doctor, be very open with your doctor, make sure that you have a doctor that you can be in relationship with and have that conversation, one who's not so busy that they may not have the time to really sit down and listen and actually plan out what you're gonna share with your doctor before you go. And really kinda journal when you're not feeling
0: well so you can see if there are any trends in um, your, your feelings. But you mentioned stress, that you had several jobs, you were trying to make ends meet, you're taking care of your family. How do you handle all that? Because you had that after the heart attack as well. How do you reduce that stress (laughs) in your life? I still have stress. Um, I think the difference
1: between me today and Keisha pre-heart attack is that I ask for help. And I say no. No is a word that I've learned to protect myself. Before no attached a level of guilt to me that almost added another layer of stress. So now I say, no, if I can't do it, you know, my intentions are very pure. So I just rest in that. And if it's not my responsibility to really persuade you, I'm saying no because I can't and not no because I just want to be mean. If you know me as a person and you trust who I am, you already know that, so
0: I've I've set down that burden. And so was it your mother's discussion with you that made you realize you need to tell the story to help other women? Yes, and
1: not only that, but I'm I'm adopted, but my biological mom is a heart attack survivor. And so I realized not only was I telling my story, but I was also telling her story. What I know from my biological family history is that my mother's mother, my biological mother's mother, died in her 50s from heart disease. And so It is so many women, the story of so many women that may shy away from sharing that story or may not have the time or the resources or even the the
0: desire to share that. But it is still a valuable story that needs to be shared. And you were the first woman from South Carolina to be a national spokesperson for the American Heart Association. Yes.
1: That was a funny story too because I kind of was not, that was not my goal at all. (laughs) I resisted that for a while because it's one thing to share your story in conversation. It's a whole nother story to be on billboards and to be on TV commercials and to be on NBC Nightly News, but still also be in McDonald's getting french fries. <laughs> so you still get french fries? I do still get french fries. Not
0: regularly, but as a treat, I still do get french fries. <laughs> But when you say it was a whole other level, what what sort of pressures did that
1: bring? Um, I mean, people started to recognize me and people started to want me to share my story just on the spot. And um, people started inviting me to events and to churches and all of a sudden I'm just like, okay. You know, I am an extrovert, but I'm an introverted extrovert. And so I like to talk to people that I know, but on a stage is something that I was, I had to kind of grow into. I had to really ask myself, Keisha, are you really going to do this? And then once I said yes, I said, okay, then, if we're really going to do this, then we're going to do it well. In order to do it well, I need to do it often. And so that's just kind of, it snowballed from there.
0: You say in your life you only do things well. Where in your life does this come from? Well, first, let me qualify that statement
1: because I only allow myself to do things well. So that means when I mess up, when I get it wrong, I get it wrong well. I mess up well. (laughs) So I want to clear the air with that. Um, But I think it's just the women that I have been surrounded by. My mother adopted me at age 43. So I have an 80 year old mother at this point and her daughters, her three daughters are now 60. 58 and 56, they're gonna kill me. But, (laughs) so I in turn have four mothers and I look at the collection of experiences that they shared with me. Not only the good, but the struggles, the hurts, the losses, the pains, the gains, the successes. And those collection of women, those four women, Jessie, Audrey, Angela, and Deborah, they are just the foundation
0: of which I've built the woman that I am. You were named as one of 40 women under 40, quite an achievement. (laughs) And what do you think they saw in you with that award? Um, I actually received that award
1: for my volunteer efforts. So I think what was just spectacular about that, that when they were just reading what my everyday life entails, the fact that, you know, I still find space and opportunity and, and energy and heart to serve people is what was impressive, which was kind of disappointing to me because I feel like it should just be an innate um, desire in people to want to serve.
0: Where did you grow up and was there one memory in your early years that um, you considered to be a turning point? I grew
1: up in Orangeburg County um, near a small town called Bowman, South Carolina. We are known as like the dairy County. So there was like cow pastures, across the street from my high school. So we were always kind of embarrassed by that. (laughs) My family is a farming family. Uh, We raised hogs. So I eat everything from the rooter to the (laughs) Tudor. And I think it was, uh, the turning point was really just my mom having a heart attack. My mom, uh, my dad also is a stroke survivor. Once I really put the correlation together that knowing my biological family history, I know that I have the genes, it's in my genes but also the fact that I grew up in a household of people who suffered from heart disease. There are also environmental factors. So I think it really was just as an adult, putting all of those pieces together and realizing that I have a collection of habits that are not healthy. And now I'm raising three children and I've already given them the gene pool. That's something that I can't control. So now I have to find what I can control in this life so that their story doesn't mirror my story. So that's diet, exercise,
0: reducing stress. Yes. Was there a teacher who gave you inspiration?
1: Yes, there are so many teachers. I hate to really just name one, because in a small town, half the teachers were my cousins or my mom's aunts, (laughs) or you know. But there was one, her name is Wanda Ritchie, and she was my high school English teacher. And she was just like a breath of fresh air. She was um, a transplant. So, whereas most of my teachers are homegrown, and that's a beauty in its own. But there's just a difference when someone else comes in, they've had different experiences, they've lived different places. She was in the military. So she had traveled. She just seemed to be such a modern woman. And she came in and her expectation was that of excellence, like unwavering excellence. I'd always had high expectations from my teachers and from my family, but hers were just, they had a tinge of military in there. So if she said, write your name, date, course uh, section in the right-hand corner of the upper margin of the paper, And you wrote it on the left, she was not gonna grade it. And because it's not done the way. And so, you know, when she first came in, you know, we were like, this lady is nuts. (laughs) But we realized that, you know, there are certain times in your life where you have to be that exact. You have to follow certain laws to the letter. And those were the principles that she was instilling in us as children. And so I love her so much. And I just, I'm so grateful for the role that she had. She spent time with me outside of school. I can remember she and my mom being in my mother's bedroom on my wedding day, helping me get dressed. So that is the type of influence that she's had. We're still in contact. She stalks my Facebook post. (laughs) If she sees anything that, you know, looks like it's not something, my my thoughts are somewhere where they don't need to be. She checks in with me, she reminds me that. (laughs) You're built for this. What grade was that? She was my high school, high school. Um, English teacher. English. Small school, you have the t-
0: same teachers. <laughs> One of the issues that many women face is work-life balance. Um, how do you overcome those issues? You have a family. You have a job. I do. a lot. I have a number of responsibilities. Many jobs. <laughs> Several jobs, actually, it sounds like.
1: <laughs> um, I think, again, I ask for help. I do what I can and I'm not so concerned about what I can't do. I tell my children no. I tell my husband no. I tell Keisha Hawes no, which is my most difficult job to date. And I just kind of, some things, they just have to get done while I'm a hot mess. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. What would your advice be for young people today? You know what, I think looking back, I had a heart attack 10 years out of college and While I was in college, taking care of myself, worrying about my health was not on my radar at all. It was really getting these books and having a good time. And that was pretty much the sum of it. So I think just the sooner you can start making your health a priority and to make it something that is a consistent part of your day, what am I doing for myself to make myself healthier? What am I doing for myself to ensure a long, lengthy, quality type of life? Um, the better. So make yourself a priority.
0: And going along with that, this series is called Women Vision. How would you define your vision, your lifelong vision?
1: I think that I just tried to see the best in everyone and in every situation. And it was when something happens to me, I just really tried to find a way to craft it to, to serve some type of purpose. So when I was stuck on the fact of just suffering a heart attack, I actually suffered. I continued my suffering. When I took a moment and I stopped and I said, no, let's, let's look at this from the lens of, you survived a heart attack. So now what is the purpose in your survival? How can you repurpose this to now be a benefit to people? That's what we are created, to be in relationship with people and to benefit people and to benefit our society. And I think if everyone kind of gets back to that, what can I do to benefit someone else?
0: And in your area, you have become a leader, a national leader. How do you define leadership? And what makes you a good leader? Honesty is the
1: very first principle of good leadership. You have to be honest with first yourself. And then you have to be fearless enough to be honest with people around you and to be honest with power, people in power. To speak truth to power is probably (laughs) a lost art because I think a lot of times we just want to tell people what we think they want to hear. We want to tell people what we think
0: will keep us in the good graces of the people who have power. But that's not always easy. It's not. In 2020, we marked the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. Why is it important for women to vote? We are
1: the mothers (laughs) of of everyone else. I think that we, as women, we really do not give enough attention to the level of power that we have. We can influence. I can influence my son. I can influence my husband. (laughs) And I think, you know, if again, we use that influence to speak truth
0: to power, we'll have a greater reach. But many people say one vote's not really gonna count. It takes time, have to go to the voting polls. There's apathy. The power of one, I think that, that, again, you're selling yourself
1: short. You can tell someone, I, I, I'm one person. I share my story as one person. But how many people have I affected by sharing my story? Every time I get up there, and even beyond the point of sharing my story about heart disease, I start off my story by telling people that I was a foster child. I was in foster care for three years of my life before I was adopted. And typically, at least one person, wherever I am, comes up to me and they say, you know, I'm adopted too. And that was such a hard thing for me to share with people. I think if each person just focuses on reaching one person, someone else will see your reach. And then they'll say, if Keisha is reaching, I can reach. And then someone else has the power to see that person reaching. And if that person is reaching, then maybe Linda will say, I'll reach. Linda has a great circle of influence. If people in your circle see you doing something out of the ordinary and they trust who you are as a person, they're more willing to say, if Linda thinks that this is a worthy cause, if Linda thinks that this is a worthy action, even if they don't move or they don't proceed with action, it garners their attention to where they're gonna at
0: least look at it a little closer. And how did, That experience as a foster child for three years, then inform your story that you could help other people with? Again, I think it goes back to my
1: mother, because she reached. So my mother was a widow of three girls when she adopted me. She had three daughters of her own, a single mom, but she still felt like she should reach and help someone else. And because of who I saw her be, I have no other choice. Than, and I have no other desire than to be just as incredible as she, she is. So it's that role model. It is. It's modeling. And that's what voting is, modeling. We're going to show someone, and beyond the vote, yes, let's vote, but also after we vote, no matter who is in office, we still have power. People think that once the vote is cast and the other candidate is elected, that all hope is lost. No. I am going to take you to task. I'm going to recall every promise that you said while you were campaigning, and I'm gonna call you out on it. I have visited Washington, D.C. I have sat in a chair across from someone to talk about global warming, and this was back in 2001 before people really thought it was real. So I have experience with speaking truth to power, and I don't mind. And
0: and it starts with that vote. It does. Your you. vote is your voice. Thank you very much, Keisha Haas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Linda. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on know it All and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCE-TV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.